What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. We face the greatest cascade of crisis in our lifetimes. We cannot turn back to the world before COVID-19. Our societies have suffered too much. Our populations have made too many sacrifices. Hello, I'm Stephanie Flanders, and welcome to the first of three special editions of Stephanomics from the Bloomberg New Economy Forum in Singapore. The time to act is now. Should countries aim for zero COVID or learn to live with it? Most of Asia was firmly on one side of that debate through the first 18 months of the pandemic. But as variants have spread and other parts of the world have taken a different course of COVID endemic, many are now changing tack. And like it or not, Bloomberg has ended up as a test case for one country's revised attitude to the virus this week, holding the New Economy Forum in Singapore. The World Economic Forum tried to have a meeting here in August, was forced to cancel. The same happened to Singapore's famous Formula One race in the autumn. But the New Economy Forum has not been cancelled yet. It's happening this week. We're here and several hundred delegates are on their way to join. So can Singapore be an example of a new normal for the region? And economically, what are the stakes for all economies in learning to live with COVID? I'm going to talk to Bloomberg Chief Economist Tom Orlig about that in a few minutes. But first, the editorial director of Bloomberg New Economy, Andrew Brown. Andy, uh, you're on the ground. What's it been like in reality organising an in-person event in a country that's also still quite nervous about COVID? Well, Singapore is a laboratory of sorts for how countries can move from zero COVID chasing down every last infection to uh, COVID endemic, where essentially you take the view that it's impossible to stop COVID uh, and the, you know, the, 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 the new variants have become so easily transmissible that your only option is to learn to live with it. And Singapore took that decision uh, of course, it wasn't, it wasn't entirely a leap in the dark. They, they decided that once they'd got to a certain vaccination level, 80%, that they would reopen. And a lot of countries in this part of the world, in East Asia or Asia Pacific, looking now at Singapore's experience and learning lessons from it, uh, including Australia, New Zealand, uh, but most importantly, China, which is by far the largest zero COVID country, and they are still adamantly sticking to that course. Well, we should talk, we'll definitely talk about China in a minute, but just on, on Singapore, I mean, we have all this, we have this in-person event, but in practical terms, I'm noticing, um, you know, I would normally just go into the Bloomberg office and see members of my team when I'm there. You know, we're doing that, but it's quite 
carefully arranged because many people are still being told to work from home. There's still quite a lot of restrictions in terms of how many people you can have meals with. So so it's still early days, isn't it? It is. Um, but, you know, we've the Singapore authorities have been remarkably flexible when it comes to the Bloomberg New Economy Forum. They want to, in a sense, use us as part of this experiment to demonstrate first of all, to the world that Singapore is back open for business, but I think also to a domestic population that it is possible to open and open safely. So we all came in in this vaccinated traveler lane. They've opened these lanes to a number of countries, including the United States, um, Australia, UK, but everybody who is attending, and there's several hundred of us, several hundred delegates at the New Economy Forum this year, um, we're all coming in under a special dispensation. First of all, everybody, of course, must be vaccinated and prove their vaccination. And then you have to take a PCR test uh, within 48 hours of, of departure. You arrive at Changi Airport, you get another PCR test, you go to your hotel, you quarantine for a few hours until the result of that PCR test comes in, and then you um, then you're free to go. You're free to to, and it's not a bubble. Um, we're allowed to move around the city. We, like Singaporeans, have to download a mobile app called Trace Together into our iPhones, into our smartphones, which alerts us and the Singapore authorities to any sort of near misses that we have with people who subsequently uh, test positive for, for, for COVID. So it's a controlled experiment and, and, and we're a part of it. A previous colleague of mine who'd gone to a very even more controlled event, I think a year, year or so ago in Singapore, and the, the limits of that quarantine were so strict that you got a hotel room key that only allowed one use. And after that, if you, if you had snuck out of your hotel room when you weren't supposed to, you would not be able to get back in. So I had visions of sort of, you know, in the middle of the night, people trying to have a run or something and then ending up outside in the corridor. Yeah, well, the Singapore public has high expectations on the performance of their government. And indeed, the government prides itself on its technocratic efficiency and ability. So it wasn't an easy decision of theirs to step back and essentially sort of let go. But, you know, they had, they had no choice. The, the, the salient point about Singapore is that it is one of the world's most open economies, most globalized economy in terms of the movement of goods and services and people, knowledge. And remaining in lockdown just wasn't an option, that the economy was really devastated last year. Um, the air transport sector of the economy um, supports jobs and industries that account for about 12% of Singapore's GDP. And, you know, the three through and at the center of this is Changi Airport. Last year, throughput in Changi was about three to four percent of what it normally is. And Singapore went into its steepest, deepest recession since independence in 1965. Um, so they had to reopen. The, you know, what happened was 
as soon as they reopened, they went from you know caseload of a few dozen a day very quickly to thousands. They 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 almost immediately spiked at about five thousand cases a day, and now we're down to uh, about three thousand a day. And 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 we had an accompanying sort of surge in deaths. So surge is probably the wrong word because it's still very very modest. Um, you know, don't forget that the population of Singapore is about five and a half million people, about the same size as Sydney or Melbourne, Barcelona. Um, nevertheless, um, you know, we're seeing last year remarkably the total number of deaths in Singapore from COVID um, was just a few dozen, and now we're getting ten or so a day. Um, and I, I think that was the first lesson uh, that that countries like Singapore are taking from from the like Australia rather are taking from the Singapore experience, which is that you really do need, even though your population is highly vaccinated, you can expect a surge in infections uh, and deaths. Uh, and it is quite politically tricky for governments that have staked so much of their credibility on chasing down every last COVID infection. Zero COVID. You mentioned China. It famously is on another tack. How long do you think they can hold out with the zero COVID approach and, and at what cost? Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, they, they've decreed that they're going to be closed um, through the Olympics the Winter Olympics, which will take place in, in February. Um, you've got this really important Communist Party Congress towards the end of the year. I think it's highly unlikely that they're going to open up and risk a surge in infections before then, particularly since they frequently compare the, the way that they have had, had so effectively handled the aftermath of of. of you know, the, the outbreak in, in Wuhan um, to the utter failure and, and of, of the United States to contain the virus. Um, so they staked a lot of legitimacy um, on zero COVID. So I don't see them reopening next year. Um, you know, it may, may actually be that they're going to keep in place restrictions uh, for many years. One of the lessons I think that they learn or that one can learn from the Singapore experience is that the longer you leave it, the worse it becomes. And one reason that they had this explosion of infections, despite having widespread vaccination, um, is because there was no natural immunity in the population. I mean, simply last year, nobody got infected. Um, and that even even a small, even though 99% of all those cases are, are mild or asymptomatic, a small, tiny number of cases um, that do become serious can very quickly overwhelm the healthcare system. Don't forget, Singapore's healthcare system and hospital system is among the best in the world. And China's healthcare system, particularly in rural areas, is rudimentary. And so it's going to become increasingly difficult for China to, to reopen, bearing in mind also that they're not using mRNA vaccines in China. They're still using the old-fashioned uh, vaccines made by, you know, uh, injecting people with inactive or, or very diluted forms of the virus. And these vaccines aren't as good. 
we're going to talk about the economic cost of that in a second with with Tom. But I'm just as you know, you lived in China for many years. You're a distinguished observer and analyst of China. I'm just wondering what you think about the the kind of intellectual and cultural cost of China remaining excluded. I've been struck recently in sessions where I'm talking to China experts, academics sitting in the US who are just increasingly concerned that about the lack of information flow and how our understanding of what's happening in China will diminish over time as this just this basic inability for people to go there um, and exchange ideas and thoughts. So you, what do you think about that? I think it is concerning when you look at these pictures of these barrack-like buildings that they're constructing uh, in Guangzhou and other coastal cities um, capable of housing 5,000 travelers. And it's pretty clear that they're hunkered down for the long term. And I think the lack of interaction between China and the world risks um, China looking inward, turning inward. Um, Xi Jinping, the country's leader, of course, hasn't traveled since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, He didn't show up at the G20. He didn't show up at COP26. And as you say, all of the normal interactions between China and the world, whether that's uh, academics, whether that's journalists, um, whether that's government officials, have all dried up. And I think under those circumstances, um, it's much easier um, for China to end up uh, with a caricatured view on what's happening in the world. It's much easier for the world to demonize China. I just think given all the tensions that are now bubbling in the relationship, tension, geopolitical tensions, tensions over Taiwan, human rights and Xinjiang, this is a time when China needs to be engaging much more vigorously um, with the rest of the world. And in the absence, I think, of, of these contexts, I think dangerous, bad things can happen. I saw we had a story the other day that the president, Joe Biden, is, is not happy with the level of intelligence that he's getting from um, from China. So it's not doesn't bode well. Andrew Brown, thank you very much. Great to be with you, Stephanie. Thank you. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. So 
as previously advertised, I wanted to have a quick chat with Chief Economist Tom Orlick about the state of the Chinese economy, because it's obviously a big part of these conversations around the COVID zero strategy. But we're also seeing China slow down quite radically, including in some of the latest data. So, so Tom, how, how severe is this slowdown? It's pretty bad, Stephanie. Um, you've got three factors hitting at the same time. First, you've got COVID zero. Just a few cases are sufficient for China to lock down entire towns, entire provinces, and that hits growth. Second, you've got energy shortages, not unique to China, but certainly hitting hard given the energy intensity of China's industrial sector. And lastly, and perhaps most troubling for the China bears, is what's going on in the real estate sector. Evergrande. Emblematic of a sector which is overbuilt, overleveraged, and now running into trouble paying its bills. Put all those pieces together, the economy came screeching to a halt in the third quarter, and the fourth quarter hasn't started much better. You mentioned real estate.、Uh, the really striking thing was they said earlier in the year we're not going to use. Real estate to stimulate the economy, like we have in the past. By all accounts, the leadership thinks the real estate sector has become too large or too too important to growth. So, how bad would it have to get for them to blink on that? So, China's real estate sector is really big. There was a recent estimate by Ken Rogoff, the kind of the giant of thinking about debt risks in the global economy. And he thinks that real estate is a more than twenty-five percent of China's GDP. So it's really big, and it's really overleveraged. There's a lot of debt there, and it's really overbuilt. I'm sure many Stephanomics listeners have heard about the ghost towns of empty property, which we see around China.、Um, and China's government has decided, well, this is not sustainable. So they're taking Evergrande, one of the biggest developers in the country, to the brink of bankruptcy, and they're doing this to teach a lesson to the sector, to teach the sector that they can't continue with this unsustainable, debt-fueled, overbuilding approach. All of that is good news. It should put the real estate sector on a more sustainable footing going forwards. It should start driving capital towards more productive uses, like. Industrial robotics or services,、um, but in the short term, finding a replacement for that twenty-five percent of GDP, which currently comes from property, that's tough to do. And what it means is that China almost inevitably faces a drag from real estate in the year ahead. I mean, how scared should we be by these latest numbers when you talk about the economy screeching to a halt? I mean, are you tearing up your forecasts for next year? So China has really slowed a lot in the last few months. If you look at the third quarter, the official data is telling us that growth was just 0.2 percent on a sequential basis. If you annualise that, it's just a 0.8 percent growth rate. China was growing slower than the United States. China was growing much slower than the five, six, seven percent pace we were accustomed to before the COVID crisis.、Um, now China has policy space to stimulate. They could do more on the fiscal side with more spending. They could do more on the monetary side, cutting interest rates or allowing banks to lend a bit more. The question is, where is their tolerance? Where is their pain threshold right now? Pre-COVID, it was pretty clear. 
they're not going to let growth drop below 6%. The big question for 2022 is where is the new line? It's probably not 6%, but is it 5%? Is it 4%? Could we be looking at a Chinese economy growing at 3%? These are big consequential questions for China. They're big consequential questions for the world. And right now, we just don't know the answer. It's one of the things I know that we're going to be discussing over the next few days with Chinese thinkers and Chinese officials at the New Economy Forum. Thanks very much, Tom Morley. Great to be here. That's it for this special edition of Stephanomics, which was produced by Magnus Hendrickson, with special thanks to Andrew Brown and Tom Orlick. Mike Sasso is the executive producer of Stephanomics, and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.